You're listening to That's Pretty Dark. The podcast where we talk about all of the entertainment that scared us as children and still haunts us as adults. So grab your flashlight and join us as we take a frightfully nostalgic look over our shoulders and under our beds and in our closets. And together we'll realize, well, that's pretty that's dark. That's pretty dark. Oh, freak yeah, y'all. Who's ready to slap this baby? Slap this baby? Yeah. Like in the movie? Yes. <laughs> no, a different baby from a different movie. I understand now. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just focusing on the fact that you said freak yeah, and I don't think I've heard anybody say that since high school. Here, here are my questions. Why does he remind him of the baby? Why does he? And why does the baby have the power of voodoo? The, the babe. You got to get it right. Whatever. The and, babe. And speaking of, well, is that your only question? You have more? You remind me of the babe. What babe? Power. Voodoo. Voodoo. <laughs> you do. You do. Do what? Remind me of the babe. <laughs> speaking of this. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> I'm really glad that you went there because look what I'm wearing right now. Oh, freak yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My babe shirt with the power. says babe with the power. I thought it How long have you had this shirt? A few years, actually. It came out at Target, mm. and I saw it and instantly went to Target and purchased it. And I don't do that very often, but I made it a point to bring this home with me. Proud of you. Thanks. You it, brought it home with you like you would bring home a babe? Yeah, I guess so. I don't want to bring home a babe like if you're at a, this point. But if you're a goblin queen? <laughs> nah, you know, I... It's really complicated. I think we'll get into some of it, but it is really complicated. His reasoning, all of it. Because mm-hmm. I've always wondered. Sure. I've always wondered. And this week, I spent time figuring it out. I have thoughts, too. I have thoughts, too. But none of them are going to justify the stealing of a baby. No. Nothing really can. But I'm going to try. <laughs> and why are we talking about stealing babies today? We we are talking about stealing <laughs> babies and babes with power because today we're going mm. to talk about... The power of voodoo. And the labyrinth. Labyrinth. As you know, Christian, I had kind of a hard time like choosing my next topic because I had a few that I wanted to do and I couldn't get in the right headspace. And then Stranger Things season four came out mm-hmm. and I watched all of it twice within the first week. And yeah, you did. I said to myself, self, you need to do something from the 80s. You need to get you need to keep this 80s thing going. I felt right. And that's exactly what I did. Well, that's good. Yep. All the synth. I lis- I listened to David Bowie for like 14 hours one day, just typing notes, researching. Mm-hmm. I hope that, that our listeners can get into the same 80s headspace because it's a fun place to be. And it's like a summer blockbuster, summer yeah. time. It's all got some good mojo, some good voodoo. Voodoo. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like you said, my name's Christian. Oh, yeah. And my name's Kaylin. This episode is brought to you by Jim Henson and David Bowie's bulging package. That is exactly right. I have a lot to say about David Bowie's bulging package. We will get to that and more. I can't wait to hear about it. (laughs) I've seen all about it. You have. Can't wait to hear about it. Now you can hear about it. Hope we don't smell about it and feel about it. I do know how I feel about it, but... I know how I feel about it. I know how I feel about it for sure. I I want to put a disclaimer on this episode though, because there is so much out there about this movie. Mm -hmm. It is one of the few things that we've covered that is just very widely known and very um it's just discussed a lot in these nostalgic right, spaces right. so there's a lot there please write in and tell us if i forget your favorite anecdote or fact or folklore connection please just let us know because <laughs> there's just too much and i'm gonna not put that pressure on myself i'm absolving myself of that pressure right here and right now good for you <laughs> this is super healthy your mental wellness is skyrocketing it is i can feel it already and everything that we get that's wrong one day when we have a Patreon, we'll do a bonus episode. Hey, and then that's we'll, like a labyrinth yeah. addendum, and we'll add on to everything and, and make sure that all the facts are known. It'll be like labyrinth, the smaller package. <laughs> so, I think I've admitted this before, but I wasn't, and still, I'm not a huge fantasy person. It's just not really always my vibe in the tra- traditional mm-hmm. like sense of the word. And I was also not a huge puppet person. Yeah, the puppetry up, is something. Other than number one was Elmo. I loved Elmo. And number two was Lamb Chop. I adored Lamb Chop. I had a Lamb Chop puppet. Lamb Chop, yeah. Loved Lamb Chop. Beyond that, I really didn't, didn't do the puppet thing. I hear you. However, I am a huge coming of age fan. That is my thing. That is my lane. That is where I like to be. And according to the creators of Labyrinth, they really wanted to lean into what they called, and I really liked it, the magic point of adolescence 
for this film. And the moment people first become aware of their shifting feelings about life. Mm. And that becomes central to our discussion today. And I promise I will come back to it. So when is that? She was about 16 in this movie. Yes. But is she playing what, like a 13, 14 year old? No, in the movie, the character is 16. She is 16? The actress, Jennifer Connelly, was 14 when she was cast in the she role. She was 14? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's when it came out. When she acted in it, she was 14. Correct. I, I looked it up because I was curious. Yeah, she was 16 when the movie came out. Right, that's right, true. right. But that was that's another like layer to this whole thing that people want to talk about and discuss. But when I started to research it and realized that, that was the point, that there was so much more to this than I knew when I was a you know, very, very young child watching it, Yeah, it made more sense to me and I became more okay with it. So hopefully I can smooth out any <laughs> uh, bulging issues that you may have <laughs> with the film. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I got, I got a couple big ones. I know that you didn't watch this movie as a kid, but I will say that I watched this movie dozens of times throughout my childhood, if not more, because yeah. it was the only kids tape that existed at my grandparents' house, huh. at my mom's parents' house, because my cousin on that side, the cousin older than me is like 10 years older. Yeah. And so he watched it when he was a kid and it just existed at their house. So it was like a hand-me-down and it was the only thing that they had to turn on when I would be at their house. And so they just plopped me in front of the TV and turn on this movie. <laughs> and I feel like if any of them, any of the adults in my family had actually like watched this movie with me, yeah, they probably the wouldn't to, have been turning it on. Yeah. No, probably not. But you know. Because the language and the exactly. uh, scary themes and the... <laughs> <clears throat> it's a lot. It's definitely a lot. And I think I didn't know that it was a lot as a kid. So... It all turned out okay. Yeah. Well, what, what do you know as a kid? Kids are dumb. <laughs> but yeah, so I didn't watch it when I was a kid. And that's my stance because I don't remember watching it. Mm-hmm. But again, having seen it twice in the last two days, it's like, did I watch this? Again, you're not sure. I don't know. Okay. Feels like I may have. But only because so many elements were so familiar to me. Mm-hmm. And I can't explain because why. Because, I mean, it's, it's a fairy tale, right? It's a fairy tale. It's... There are themes that are used throughout lots of other fairy tales. I mean, but I'm talking like film specific stuff too that stuck out to me. And I was like, I have seen this before. Wow. But then again, my brain likes to do that. You may have been lying to me. My brain likes to do that. Who knows? Labyrinth was released theatrically on June 27th, 1986. And would you like a little summary? Yeah, why not? Okay. So in this musical fantasy film, 16-year-old Sarah is given a quest to reach the center of an enormous otherworldly maze to rescue her infant half-brother Toby, whom Sarah, in a fit of teenage angst, wished away to Jareth, the Goblin King. He's not half of a brother. He's a... He's a half. He's a half. Yeah, he's a half brother. Blood and relative. As you s- told me that you thought when you had originally tried to watch this film maybe years mm-hmm. ago as an adult. Yeah. You were like, "WTF? Am I watching?" <laughs> yeah. And I would like to try and answer and that question for you today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, as we know from like our journeys into folklore and fairy tale, goblins are often depicted as these mischievous entities stealing babies or swapping them with changelings. I love goblin lore. I know that you do. So we're going to oh, get God, into I love it. So much. Some of these goblins are more devious and evil in intent than others, and they often require some moral overcoming or repentance from their victims. Mm-hmm. And I also looked into the significance of a labyrinth on a spiritual or historical level. Aside from like the general ideas of defeating some monster or like solving puzzles, yeah, yeah, labyrinths through history have also symbolized ways to become closer to the self through transformation and introspection, huh. like a pilgrimage. Yeah, and if you've seen this film, that probably makes a lot of sense. <laughs> sure does. And I love it, and I love it more now than I ever did. Now that I know this stuff and this background. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stories to do with mazes and the kinds of things you run into when you're in a maze or what you find there. You you usually have to answer a bunch of riddles and solve puzzles and you encounter, you know, fiends and other adversaries and monsters that lurk behind the, you know, corners and you have to, you know, escape these things. So it's it's really crazy where that sort of mythology and lore comes from just from like a labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Or a maze of some sort. And I just find it so interesting that the focus is actually, at the end of the day, supposed to be on the self and like how yeah. you're transforming and what you're learning. It's like getting and lost in all this chaos and this mystery in order to find yourself. Exactly. Really interesting. I love it. I love it. And if it that's so not much. the essence of the adventure narrative, then like what is? And I also think about like video games that I played as a kid, you know, Pokemon, <laughs> Zelda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There were all of these levels and puzzles, even like Super Mario. Right. It was all about this journey. 
Yeah. And it always did teach you something about the character or the character grew in some way or, you know, you had that sense of accomplishment. Yeah. But I really never took it to the extreme as far as looking internally and how I was transformed by the trials that I face. Sure. I don't sure. think of life that way, but I should based on <laughs> all of the fiction that I've been exposed to. Yeah, I kind of am surprised. Yeah, I just I, I don't in the moment, I don't think of it like that, I guess. And I didn't I don't think of video games as teaching me those things. But then I look back on my life and anybody our mm-hmm. age can look back on their life and realize how common that is. Probably because when you play a video game, you die like a hundred times before you get to complete <laughs> the level. True, so you probably, true. Have, it's the whole morals lost on you. Very the true. The whole thing. It's also like, we talked about this on Page Master as well. It's that same sort of idea. Yeah. But the interesting thing, and I will talk more about this as well. The interesting thing about Labyrinth is that they used a female character, a female protagonist in this coming of age role. Yeah. And that's not common at all. It's usually I dudes. I didn't realize how uncommon it was actually until I started yeah, this sp- research because I always put myself in those shoes. Yeah. But yeah. it doesn't happen. Like there's not the representation that there is for guys. That's true. So we'll get that's there. True. We'll get to so that and so much more coming right at you. <laughs> so for part one of Labyrinth, I want to give you some history on the film and its creators and some of the actors that were involved. Cool. Because I truly think learning who these people are is going to help us learn why the film is the way that it is and why right. they felt the lessons that they shared in this film were so important. Sometimes when I'm researching, I get worried about the volume of information that I'm uncovering. And then I remember why we're here. And it's all about making those connections and figuring out how we relate to these artists. Because now we're in their shoes and we're the ones making art and content. Right. And I think, again, like I said, learning who these filmmakers are is one of the best ways to dive into the psychology of the art and the films that they make. Yeah. Labyrinth was, of course, directed by puppetry legend Jim Henson, like we mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah. And he created The Muppets and Fraggle Rock. My family liked The Muppets, and it's one of those things that you kind of just like as a kid. You absorb, Because they yeah. are a thing that kids like. I mean, I didn't do The Muppets that much. I wasn't mm-hmm. really a Jim Henson person, but at the same time, I feel like I knew his style Yeah. anyway. It just was so pervasive. It didn't, st- it didn't stick with me. Yeah, me neither. I know a lot of people are like big Muppet Muppet fans, so I feel yeah. feel bad. But I have gained an enormous amount of respect for Jim Henson. No, for this sure. Episode. And this one, uh, I was really impressed with the puppets in this one. Yeah, it's insane. So. I'm sure we'll get to some of the specifics, but We will. Yeah. And this one was also executive produced by George Lucas, who was a good friend of Jim Henson's throughout his mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know this, but Jim was actually a native of Leland, Mississippi, huh. and he later moved to Maryland. And like us, I found a quote from him where he remembered the arrival of the family's first television as the biggest event of his adolescence. <laughs> <laughs> that made me really happy. Amazing. Because it does shape us, and it clearly shaped him. Yeah. He actually began creating puppets for a local TV station Saturday morning programming while he was still in high school. This was like wow. in the 50s. Yeah. He also created a puppetry show, Sam and Friends, while he was a freshman in college. Hmm. And that actually contained an early prototype for Kermit the Frog. I had never heard of Sam and Friends, but it was the original stepping stone to the Muppets. And he created it when he was a freshman in college. <laughs> Sometimes genius strikes. It does. He was one of the first to begin using rubber and fabric to create his characters rather than traditional wood mannequins and using rods to control their Mm -hmm. movement and control the movement of the puppets rather than string like a marionette. Yeah, yeah. And this made his characters more engaging than the puppets of the past. He wasn't making no Pinocchio. (laughs) No, no. He didn't know Geppetto. more than Pinocchio. Geppetto Henson. (laughs) Jim Geppetto Henson. (laughs) That was his grandfather, yeah. After studying crafts and textiles as part of a home economics degree, he went on to marry his college sweetheart and fellow puppeteer, Jane, and with her, he founded the Jim Henson Company. Jim and Jane and Geppetto. Jim and Jane, yes. And they spent the next two decades working in TV. They worked a lot on commercials with their puppet characters until they were asked to join the Sesame Street team in 1969. Do you think she liked puppets or do you think he was just like, welcome to the puppet family? (laughs) We make puppets for a living. I don't know, honestly. I feel like you kind of had to have an affinity for it or it was not going to work out. Maybe that's why they fell in love in the first place. Because she was like really into the puppets. She was like, I like what you do with your hands. I think so. Turn me into a puppet. I think it's what brought them together. And there are a couple other couples that we'll talk about in that vein. Yeah. I think that's what brought a lot of these folks together. 
Because, I mean, I don't know anybody that's into puppetry. I feel like it's kind of a niche hobby. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I do either. Back then, there wasn't the career in film that there is for it now. Right. He right. created that, essentially. I know people who make props for film, but they don't do puppets. Mm -hmm. Big difference. Big, big difference. big difference. And puppetry is like engineering, straight up. It, I, it's like robotics, too. I mean, you did the whole robotics thing. Exactly. Yeah, I learned a lot about the puppetry from the Into the Labyrinth documentary. It's like a feature on some of the later release home video DVDs. Yeah. And it's wild to see how they built and how they built what they built and to hear from some of the puppetry engineers, the people that not only the engineers, but also mm -hmm. the art department that was creating their look and feel and everything. Yeah, that set was wild. It's creativity that I can't fathom in myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. So back to 1969, during this time, Jane began to take more time off to raise their kids. And in that time, he brought on some new collaborators, including Frank Oz, whose name you may have heard, mm -hmm. uh, with the Muppets whole situation yeah. to help lighten the load. And the Muppet show was born in the late 70s, and that ushered in a lot of new popularity for the team. And they produced their first feature, the Muppet movie, in 1979. Nice. And by this point, they were gaining steam. He was friends with George Lucas and... He was asked, Henson, Jim Henson was asked to work on the creation and the articulation of the character Yoda huh. in The Empire Strikes Back. Wow. And this is when wow, Henson that? lobbied for Frank Oz, his partner, to voice the character of Yoda, which he did. Oh, he did that. The series. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Frank Oz. Frank Oz. So Jim and Frank, then they made a distinct move toward, and I quote, darker, more realistic subjects and displayed a growing, brooding interest in mortality. <laughs> Thank God. They found their groove co-directing Labyrinth's entirely puppet-driven predecessor, which was The Dark Crystal, in 1982. Mm -hmm. And this was also thanks to illustrator and concept designer Brian Froud. So you're going to hear his name a lot as well. Uh, the Dark Crystal was considered very esoteric and dark, and people didn't really get it. <laughs> I've not seen it since I was a kid. I would have to go back and watch it. I should have probably watched it before this, but I figure we could probably cover it at some point someday. Yeah, probably. It's it's a lot darker. Again, it's only puppets. It's a different feeling entirely than Labyrinth, but it is similar in the ways that they created it. Right. So Brian Froud, other than his work with Jim Henson, he went on to do concept art for the 2003 Peter Pan, hmm. as well as Pete's Dragon and Nemo in Slumberland, which multiple people have brought to me saying that we need to cover it okay. on this podcast. So Nemo and Slumberland was really dark and had a villain that apparently has messed some folks up in the 80s as well. Done. <laughs> it's on the list. It's on the list. So this creative team, Jim, Frank, and Brian, they jumped headfirst into production on Labyrinth, and they were aiming for more comedy than had been found in Dark Crystal. And Henson had this experienced creature shop now, hmm. is what he called it. And they, you know, had a lot more background in creating these characters thanks to the work they'd done on dark crystal and the muppets etc yeah, yeah. so they had this creature shop working on all of the film's fantastical inhabitants and again in that making of documentary henson said that the creature shop had been hard at work for around a year and a half prior to shooting but everything only came together in the last couple of weeks hmm. and we know how that feels <laughs> as it goes yeah as it goes, so it goes in showbiz. Hmm. And again, they show a lot of the process of creating puppets in that doc. And I would highly recommend go and check it out. It's really cool. Nice. For even me, a person that's not a puppet person. Yeah. I'm going to watch that. Sounds interesting. It's cool. Mm -hmm. So puppetry of this caliber was a no-brainer for any Henson film at this point. But some critics thought it was odd to have live protagonists and a live antagonist. Like acting and they thought that was an odd choice. Puppets. Acting with puppets entirely. Yeah. I feel like that's so common. I feel like it is now. It, maybe <laughs> when this was made, it wasn't. Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. I feel like I feel like now it's very, very common with green screens and CGI. Sure. Often actors are working with creatures that aren't there. And of course, how all the Muppets movies have like the main leads are like human, you know, mm -hmm. now. Yep. And that the Muppet show is what he referenced when critics were like, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. They actually had E.T. on the set, E.T. Entertainment Tonight, mm. not E.T. the extraterrestrial. <laughs> not the puppet alien. Yeah. <laughs> right. Not the puppet. And uh, Jim told them that the live person creates a bridge between the audience and these characters that are puppets. Makes sense. And he said that he he wanted two characters of flesh and bone in the middle of all of the artificial creatures. And he also said at this point that David Bowie embodies a certain maturity with his sexuality, his disturbing aspect, and all sorts of things that characterize the adult world. I'll say. <laughs> 
And I feel like this sexual tension in the film was a central element to the darkness that I and many others felt in the film as children. Yeah. And again, I think this is another case when we actually, it's not darkness, but we didn't have the vocabulary to express how those mature themes made us feel at the time. Yeah, it's just that that yeah. dangerous discomfort. It's unfamiliar. And like he said, it characterizes the adult world. Yeah. And prior to me jumping into this research, I kind of had a bone to pick with that. I was like, mm -hmm. this is, you know, a kid's movie. Why was this so important? And looking back on it, I, I get it now. I understand what he was doing because of the focus that he had on coming of age in this movie. Yeah. And the subtle way he conveyed that. I found and made my piece with it on my second watch through mm -hmm. this week. I put some things together that connected at the end of my second viewing. And I was like, okay, if that theory holds up, then nice. this makes a lot more sense than what I thought. Yeah. So I feel better about it. I've made my piece with it. Yeah. So, you know, we'll, <laughs> for yeah. sure. Let's just and hash it out. <laughs> here's where I will address. Let's open the, that package. <laughs> the, yeah. Let's open the package, right? Let's just, let's get it out in the open right here, right now. Let's talk about it. We've let some things hang out and just f figure this out. Yeah. It's often the first comment from critics of the film. And, I have to let you know, and maybe break your heart, I'm not sure, hmm. but David was not actually on display in those tights. At least not as much as it seems. They stuffed his package? Yes. <laughs> it was absolutely part of the costume. It was essentially an athletic cup. Part of me kind of and thought they stuffed it, but I thought it was out of, um, you know, vanity. Not uh, not like intentional. Sure. For sure. Vanity on Bowie's part, you mean? Vanity on Bowie's part. Like, I'm going to stuff this real oh. quick. <laughs> And nobody's going to say anything because I'm David Bowie. No. It turns out that that is not, hmm. not at all the case. Yeah. It was entirely a Jim Henson thing. Weird. <laughs> and it was created to be prominent on purpose huh. because he wanted this element to be jarring and surprising to Sarah's character, who thought she was ready for adulthood, but right. maybe not that ready. That checks out with my theory. Yes. Yeah. And again, hmm. there, are, there are elements of this. You could argue it back and forth. I, I know in circles where we grew up, it probably would be frowned upon. But the more that I thought about it and considered it, the more I understand it's just reality no, in a yeah. strange way, even though it isn't real. Mm -hmm. And I think being confronted with something like that at the age that Sarah is, is scary, but it's also part of life that you have to mm -hmm. learn. My theory, well, first I'll say this. I'm not heartbroken by the size of his package. <laughs> Doesn't matter one way or the other to me. Uh, no, okay. Not just really. making sure. Two, my main theory, what I put together at the end of my second viewing is that all of this is sort of her imagination. Mm -hmm. She's made all this up in her mind. You're on the, you're exactly on track. All of her stuffed animals are in her room that, that yes. mirror, that yes. reflect the characters in the story. It's all there. She has yep. these ideas of romance and fantasy and whimsy and what all that should be. And he says, to get way ahead of ourselves, mm -hmm. he says at the end, that he's exhausted by living up to her expectations of him. Yes. Because she created him, essentially. Yes. And she gave him a massive package. <laughs> yeah. She put yeah. that on him. She sexualized him. Exactly. And I get And not that. only that, it's not just the idea, okay, that this is what men are like. It is the stark difference between men and women. Yeah. In her her adolescent mind that she's trying to understand. That too. That too. It's it's a lot of that. You're you're nailing it. We can just okay. pack it up and go home now. What's, We're done. This cool. Is <laughs> wow. We are only a half hour in. Folks, See you next Christian just, week, you guys. He got he got to the point real quickly. I'm gonna shut um, this down real quick. I'll, I'll also say, fine with all of this. This makes a lot of sense to me. I am all for maturity in these sort of more whimsical, dark fantasy things. I like to write things like this. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, but PG thirteen, please. I agree. That is really my only That's all I gotta say. And we will get there. Like I said, there's a lot to talk about. In part two, we're going to talk through the plot, and I really want to dive into some of this conversation. Yeah. So I'm really glad that you're on that page with me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you're a listener, if you haven't thought about it in this way before, I encourage you to open your mind to it because it, it blew mine when I really started to understand it. Mm -hmm. I was... Very impressed overall. If you don't open your mind, it's going to get blown for you. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs>
So you mentioned, we'll just segue right into my next my next little point here. You mentioned that a lot of the things that appear in the labyrinth are seen in Sarah's room. Mm-hmm. So as far as the story of Labyrinth goes, it's obvious that Jim was very heavily influenced by the works of Maurice Sendak. Yeah. With the plot of Outside Over There being strikingly similar to the plot of Labyrinth. Hmm. I don't know that one. So it's it's a Maurice Sendak book where a baby is stolen <laughs> and the protagonist has to go and rescue the baby. Well, there you go. Because you see where the wild things are in her, uh, you know, her desk. Yes. And Outside Over There is also on her oh, really? or on the desk nice. with the other books. Nice. So this similarity almost got the film into legal trouble. Hmm. And the complaint was settled because in the end credits, they added, quoting, Jim Henson acknowledges his debt to the works of Maurice Sendak <laughs> <laughs> because it was so close. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so again, yeah, both those books are shown briefly in her room, along with copies of Alice in Wonderland, The Wizard of Oz, Grimm's Fairy Tales, mm-hmm. uh, Snow White. Yep. And all of these served as inspiration, not only for the film, but for Sarah's imagination, which we will soon find out. Totally. And there's also like goblin figurines. Yeah. <laughs> there is so much to her room that I've seen all my life. And some of it I only just now understand yeah. in this viewing. Right, right, So I'm right. really excited to share that with you guys. Nice. It also comes as no surprise to learn that the riddle-filled screenplay... The original draft was written by Terry Jones, who was part of the Monty Python comedy troupe. I'm not surprised at all. No. And it had and still has a reputation for its absurdist themes and all the really heavy wordplay. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's that's what I noticed most. (laughs) Yes. Even as a kid, I noticed uh, the similarities because I had, I I don't think I really had seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I don't think I saw it. (laughs) In fact, I don't think I saw it until I was at a lock-in at my friend's church when I was like sixth grade or something that's so funny and i stayed awake and it should never have been played because everything played mine is so similar Mm. i went to a friend's house for his birthday and his family loved that movie and so we watched it but they were a hyper christian family right and they sped through the you know Mm -hmm. harem scene and what's really hilarious for me is that i was the only person awake at the lock-in including the chaperones no one was awake and I watched the whole scene. I want to see the shot of you in a movie. At a church lock-in. <gasps> a room full of kids in like sleeping bags. Even the adults yeah. are asleep. And you were in the glow <laughs> of the TV, sitting there, yes. eyes wide open. Looking 100% at all these accurate. busty ladies. 100% like, accurate. <gasps> and I was like. I'll be like that one day. I had always, you know, I had seen clips of it. And my friend, again, my friends, like you said, your friend's family. For whatever reason, there are just Monty Python families out there. They if are. you are one, shout out to you. But my good friends growing up, they were a Monty Python family. Yeah. So the knights that say knee and like all of these <laughs> these scenes, I had seen them and heard the jokes forever. That's my favorite. But that was the first time I had ever seen the whole movie all the way through. <laughs> so good. God. Church Lockins, man. Just a flesh wound. Just a flesh wound. So all of those Monty Python feelings, all those Monty Python jokes, the style of speaking can be seen in the labyrinth very strongly. Like Didymus, especially for me. Yes. Absolutely. Didn't miss for sure. Uh, But I will also say that the script was one of the biggest points of contention in getting this movie made. It was actually rewritten many times and it had contributions from Jim Henson himself, a contributor. I couldn't find a lot of information about her, but her name was Laura Phillips. Hmm. And even George Lucas contributed to some of the writing. And there were a lot of dissenting opinions about the right direction for the film and how to best portray the lessons that they wanted yeah. Sarah to learn. Yeah, I found this fact online. May or may not be true. But from what I read, <laughs> all in all, at least 25 treatments and scripts were drafted for Labyrinth between 1983 and 1985. Damn. And the final version of the script was delivered four days before production began. That I believe that part's way more believable (laughs) that's pretty pretty relatable (laughs) but even like an early draft it was like a poetic novella Mm -hmm. they had had uh man i should have written it down but they had had it drafted as a treatment and terry jones like threw it out and didn't even want to look at it (laughs) and basically started from scratch it was difficult to get the script to the point that it is and i have in part two we'll we'll talk about some deleted scenes and things that came through in earlier drafts that didn't make the final cut but did influence the that's fun overall vibe of the film that's so fun i can't wait yeah also jim henson thought that it was really important to feature performances by david bowie and i mean honestly as a director like ace move 
way to go. Great job. Because it was. Uh, what, these music video performances? Yes. I'm going to be the arguing you didn't like them? Uh, voice against that. You never liked them. Oh, psh, I always, I like music breaks. I'm, uh, I'm against it. <laughs> I'll be the one, the 1% of people that don't like David Bowie in this movie. Oh my God. I, I, I love it. I've made my peace with it. I'm, I'm past it. <laughs> You, yeah, we'll talk about it. I want I want your opinions. You need to share these opinions. Still a great movie. I think Jim Henson made it a great choice on this. Yeah, well, some of us have bad opinions, you know, whatever. <laughs> the original vision of the script, Jones's script, yeah. had Jareth as a more overt villain. Foreboding. It was, yeah, it was know. more straightforward villain and protagonist, like, relationship. See, that's what I want. I liked it better this way. And I know that comes as no surprise to you. No. No surprise. So speaking of the music, the score and soundtrack for the film is one of my favorite parts, and it was crafted by both this South African composer, Trevor Jones. There's so many Joneses to keep up with, by the way. <laughs> Keeping up with the Joneses. <laughs> Lots of people named Jones, including David Bowie himself. Spoiler alert. Damn. But it was crafted by Trevor Jones and David Bowie. And Trevor Jones had also scored The Dark Crystal and he went on to score dozens more films, including The Last of the Mohicans, mm. Richard III, Dark City, Crossroads. Yes, the Britney Spears movie. Wow. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Notting Hill, and many more. Bowie wrote five songs for the soundtrack, which is one of the most recognizable and long-lasting elements of the film. And they took on lives of their own. And I'm in love with all of them. I don't care what Christian says. <laughs> Uh, Bowie performed all of these songs except for Chili Down, which was performed by the actors portraying the fiery fairy monsters. Right, right. I would encourage all of you listening to go and find the music videos that Christian mentioned and tell us your opinion, because I personally am very glad that they exist. <laughs> to each his own. Did he write the uh, fire demon song or whatever it he was? He did. Yes, he wrote it, but he did not perform it. Interesting. We have some conversation about those lyrics, too, I know. We'll, we'll definitely get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> Uh, I also want to add an anecdote to our masquerade ball discourse because we have a lot of that on this podcast. Okay. So during the early 80s, this was the peak of success for Jim Henson and his creature shop. Creature shop. And he began throwing these elaborate masquerade parties each year for all of his employees and friends and artists hmm. and, you know, everybody that was working at the Jim Henson company. And this became one of the most sought after invitations in New York City. And it actually inspired the masquerade scene in the movie. Wow. Not actual fairy lore. Right. Interesting. And Jim actually confessed to borrowing some bits and pieces for his 1985 Masquerade Ball because Labyrinth was about two months from beginning production at that point. Of course. I would too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, same. For sure. You have all this at your fingertips. Naturally. Amazing. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I read a whole article about the ma Masquerade Balls and it sounds amazing. That's fun. All right. Sweet. It sounds incredible. So filming for Labyrinth began in Hertfordshire, England on April 15th of 1985, and it took them five months to film. Nice. And it was obviously a complicated shoot due to all the puppets and the animatronics. And they talked a lot in the behind the scenes about the fact that people say not to work with babies or animals or puppets. And they worked with all of those <laughs> all things. All of them. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I was cringing one. at a lot of the baby scenes. And honestly, Jim Henson was really, really funny in the behind the scenes. I, he just seems like such a sweet person when you hear him talking about it. He's a but puppeteer. He, 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 he gave that anecdote. Like, people say don't work with, you know, dogs, babies, puppets. And he was like, obviously, I worked with puppets before. But in this movie, I got to work with, you know chickens and dogs and babies and now i know why they say that he just he said it so cheerfully and just moved on that's so funny so good that's so funny so only a few scenes of labyrinth weren't filmed in the studio mm -hmm. the park scene was filmed in england as well but in an actual park in buckinghamshire yeah i looked it up oh nice <laughs> i wanted to know because i want to visit i was gonna say you know all this stuff i was like i need to go see that park it's gorgeous it's beautiful i would yeah. love to go there i wish that i'd gone there I've been to London, only London, never anywhere else in England. And no, no, I went. No, I made a point to, to go to Kensington Park because I've been to Europe. I've been the Mary Kate Ashley movie, Winning London, <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> because Kaylin, of Peter Pan statue. I've been to London. Anyway, so the scene where Sarah's running home was filmed in several different towns in New York State, which you can tell by the look of it. I think it's so pretty. Reminded me of the Goonies. Yeah, yeah. it does. Definitely has a Goonies, Goonies vibe. Very Astoria. And like most things that we talk about on That's Pretty Dark, Labyrinth wasn't exactly a success in its time. Really? It had a budget of $25 million, and it was a box office disappointment, hmm. grossing only $12.9 during its U.S. run. 
It was released on VHS, Betamax, and Laserdisc. First time <laughs> I've gotten to say those words on this podcast wow. in 1987 by Embassy Home Entertainment. And that is how I was introduced to it because the VHS tape lived on again from my cousin when he had been yeah. younger. Yeah. And it was the last feature film that Jim Henson directed because apparently the lack of success at the time kind of rocked him, according to his son. Hmm. And he ended up focusing more on children's programming after this. He also continued to address darker and more mature themes with this folktale and mythology. He did a show called The Storyteller in 1988 that I need to look up because apparently it was very dark compared to a lot of the other Henson projects. That sounds amazing. That sounds like what they were going to originally make Are You Afraid of the Dark? Mm-hmm. Just very dark, like fairy tales. Yeah. We need to check it out. We need to check that see out. If it's, see if it's... If we can find it. Shoot, that'd be cool to cover. I agree. This little obscure thing. That'd be awesome. In 1989, Jim Henson entered negotiations to sell his company to Disney. And that resulted in TV special and Muppet Vision 3D in MGM Studios, the park. Yeah. Which is was my like main exposure to the Muppets, I feel like. Oh, yeah. Me too. Yeah. That's just, yeah. I don't know. That's what I think of when I think of the Muppets. In my mind, that would be when he like achieved the ultimate success. Yeah. And I feel I feel that way too. Uh, but apparently, according to his son, it didn't. It took a toll on his health. He just he struggled through that deal a lot, and he actually passed away the next year oh, from wow. bacterial pneumonia. Jeez. Actually, later called what it actually was, which was toxic shock syndrome in 1990. Hmm. And if he'd gone to the hospital even like a couple hours before, he probably would have made it. Wow, crazy, crazy story. Look it up. I won't. I won't. I've already <laughs> bummed you out. <laughs> yeah, that's. No, that's crazy. Yeah. I want to look that up. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Well, oh, you never heard of toxic shock syndrome? No. Every female is yelling at you right now. This is news to me. Every female is yelling at you right now. This is warned against on every tampon package that's ever been made in America. Well, I've never worn a tampon (laughs) or even honestly ever even held a tampon box, (laughs) to be frank with you. Every, Every girl has a fear of this because it is drilled into our mind that if you wear a tampon for longer than the recommended amount of time, you can get a bacterial infection, which can lead to toxic shock syndrome, which is when your organs start to fail, which is what happened to him, except it was pneumonia. Maybe he should have changed out his tampon. <laughs> Poor Jim Henson. I feel, that does sound terrible. God, I feel bad for him. I really do. Because he was working himself so hard and he, like his son said, it, he was so stressed about the Disney deal Yeah. and everything. So Man, that sucks. I'll say it for everybody. That sucks. It does. It sucks. So, Christian. Yes, Kaylin. Would you like to hear about the cast and crew of Labyrinth? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I think I could go for that right now. You would? Okay, good. Because if you said no, I don't know what I would have done. So, we obviously first have to talk about the Goblin King himself, Jareth, a.k.a. David Bowie. The keeper of the package. He was 39 years old when he played Jareth, and the role was specifically crafted for him. Uh, Jim Henson told reporters, again, David was my first choice for the part with his otherworldly quality. It's something you can't quite put your finger on. At the same time, it's very powerful, and it has the ability to go from very attractive to nearly villainous. I could not agree more. (laughs) I feel like his ability to toe that line really inspired my personal fascination with the villain character in general Mm -hmm. from a very early age. And he was really the first one I remember feeling that way about because he's so intriguing but also right. kind of terrifying. He's not repelling. He's not repelling. He's not repulsive as a villain. He's not as re- he's not repulsive as a villain should be. Yeah, yeah. So Brian Froud wrote about the inspiration for Jareth in the 20th anniversary edition of The Goblins of Labyrinth. It's a book. He wrote that Jareth references the romantic figures of Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights, mm-hmm. brooding Rochester from Jane Eyre, and also the Scarlet Pimpernel. Yeah. Which I love. Yeah. So there's just all of these elements that make him, like, you don't want to hate him and you feel like there's, like, he's just misunderstood, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah. One of my mistakes was reading Wuthering Heights in high school and uh, being somewhat of a Heathcliff myself. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. It's kind of my my mistake when you romanticize that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, no. I I dated them. So it doesn't really get you. Well, I was going to say, it doesn't really get you the dates you think it will, but then you end up Mm -hmm. dating all of them. So. You know, I don't know. Every single one. Yeah. Yeah. I found them and I dated them. So I guess those girls are out there. I just haven't <laughs> found them yet. That's what I was saying. It's a good thing we didn't know each other in high school. Yeah. I'll say. Good damn. <laughs> Dodged a bullet. <laughs> 
I will give a brief and spotty. I realize it's spotty, but there's so much about David Bowie out there. I just tried to condense it because I want, again, yeah. to understand who these people were behind this. No, film. we could have it makes all the difference. a multi-episode series on David Bowie and not even scratch oh, yeah. the surface. There's no Oh, way. my God. There's, no there's just there's so much. Last podcast on the left had a David Bowie in the occult. Really? Like either episode or series. Just just about him. Oh my god. Being I haven't I love I haven't I haven't heard it. I'm gonna have to go listen to it. You have to, to. I yeah. Have it's to it honestly then. great. Wow. It's great. I love that. So you're probably gonna know a lot of the things I'm gonna talk about, but for the listener that doesn't, buckle up. Ooh. <laughs> so he was born David Robert Jones. Again, with the Jones. Davy Jones. Exactly. And he was apparently enamored with the arts from the very beginning of his life, and he showed skills in dancing. A lot of people described him as otherworldly, even from childhood. Wow. And he excelled at pretty much every instrument he touched, including the recorder. So he's like Ryan Gosling. <laughs> uh, no. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't equate the two. <laughs> Um, he also was a huge fan of Elvis and Little Richard and Chuck Berry, who his dad introduced him to, and he formed his first band when he was 15. So he's like Ryan Gosling. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll give it to you. Um, he jumped around to a lot of different bands and labels and bandmates during these years, his late teen years, early twenties. And he had these aspirations of being a pop star, but I noticed that he just never really collaborated with people for very long. And he didn't want to be confined to any specific genre or idea, and he was always breaking these molds. So he's like Ryan Gosling. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. You got it now. Do I have it yet? <laughs> <laughs> he only spent short periods of time on these ideas before he would jump ahead to something new. And like you mentioned, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're still kick, like you're. He's giggling about so his joke. So he's like Ryan Gosling. <laughs> <laughs> So he took on the name David Bowie in the mid-60s after the pioneer who popularized the Bowie knife. Yes, he's named after the Bowie knife. He named himself after the Bowie knife. He did. Because of the confusion with Davy Jones of the monkeys. Right. So, you know, David Robert Jones, he was getting too confused with Davy Jones, who was big at the time, and changed his name. He's got a hell of a locker, I heard, though. It's just a... I've heard that as well. I've heard that as well. You know, if I think of Davy Jones, I actually think immediately of the Brady Bunch. That's the first one, the wow. first place that I go, not Pirates. I mean, I knew Davy Jones before Pirates of the Caribbean, but... But that's still where you're... Mostly Spongebob. Oh, yeah, Spongebob too. I think that wow. was my first introduction to Davy Jones, actually. Oh, my actually. God. Well, we're going to talk about Spongebob again in just a second. Davy Jones's locker. Hold, hold those horses. So... There are just a lot of interesting facts about David Bowie, so I'm going to yeah. share some of them. Hit me with them facts. He, he spent time touring as a mime. Wow. He was very into the art of mime. <laughs> and you know how he had one eye that was a different color than the other? Yeah. A lot of people assume he had heterochromia, which is when, you know, one eye is a different color than the other. Uh, but he was punched in the face by his friend when they were teenagers fighting over a girl. <laughs> and that led to his eye being a different color for the rest of his life. That is wild. Yeah. It's like a hallmark of David Bowie. And it's all from a schoolyard fight. Hmm. I was also fascinated by his connections with outer space and futuristic ideas. His song Space Oddity played over the Apollo 11 lunar landing in 1969. Hmm. And it was one of his earliest mainstream successes. And it was also playing in the Tesla Roadster that Elon Musk launched into space in 2018. (laughs) Not surprised. (laughs) Of course. Interestingly, he was also the first artist to release a streaming and download-only single called Telling Lies in 1996, and it took 11 minutes to download. 96, huh? Yeah. Wow. He was number one. He was number one. (laughs) I'll get to SpongeBob. I'm getting there. I I read this quote from him. It blew my mind. He was predicting the impact of the internet, basically. Oh, I've heard this. Yeah. I really embrace the idea that there's a new demystification process between the artist and audience. He said this in 1999. He said, the interplay between the user and the provider will be so in simpatico, it's going to crush our ideas of what mediums are all about. Yep. Hello, YouTube. Mm -hmm. Hello, TikTok. Yep. He nailed it. He knew. He could see something that we couldn't see or we can't see. No, for sure. He's Again, the otherworldly word. It followed him everywhere he went for his whole life and I think with good reason. I think he just, he really probably just had this ability to to see through bullshit. Yeah, maybe. And put things together in a way that just made sense. And it's just, that's how you speak truth into into the universe. And he did. He did that. Yeah. 
a note about him and his family. You may have heard this if you're a Bowie fan, but he had a half-brother who was 10 years older than him who suffered from schizophrenia, and a couple of other relatives, two aunts, I think, Mm -hmm. had schizophrenia spectrum disorders, and one of them actually underwent a lobotomy. I think I knew that. And a lot of his biographies claim that this influenced his early work. Mm -hmm. Um, And his, his brother is also the one that introduced him to many things that followed him through his life, jazz, Buddhism... Beat poetry and the occult. (laughs) Yes, the occult. That is straight from Wikipedia, but I believe it. (laughs) That's true. Um, These are all things that meant a lot to him, and I think that his brother was the one that showed him the way, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, He famously created several onstage personas, including Ziggy Stardust and the Thin White Duke. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And a lot of the things that he said about those characters, especially Ziggy Stardust, reminded me a lot of actors that you and I have discussed a lot in terms of method acting. Yeah. Like Shia LaBeouf, Jim Carrey, all these actors, they say that the line gets kind of blurred. and Totally, yeah. Bowie's quoted as saying that he felt like a robot when he was himself, and he only felt emotion when he was playing his characters. Right, I have heard And that. I've heard both Shia LaBeouf and Jim Carrey say similar things. Yeah, even uh, Johnny Depp yeah. said the same thing. It's just this, yeah. they, this... that's They act for so long that that's the only way they can access their yeah. emotion. It's this liberation, this freedom. I think it's a double-edged sword. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. They, yeah. they don't know how to feel alive. They don't know how to feel real. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's really interesting. And it's interesting to me that his, you know, these schizophrenia disorders ran in his family, but he connected so much with acting and displacing himself on purpose almost. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. He was also acting from a young age. I've only really focused on his music so far, but I learned that acting was another one of his passions hmm. right alongside music. And yeah. one of his earliest credits was a black and white short film from 1969 called The Image. The Image. And it involved him playing a ghost that emerged from a painting to haunt the artist that had painted it. I think that sounds really cool. I want to see this. Me too. <laughs> like right now? Me too. He also played Pontius Pilate in The Last Temptation of Christ. Hmm. And here we go. He had a Nickelodeon credit. He appeared in a SpongeBob episode in 2007. I didn't know that. 2007. I wasn't. I don't think I was watching SpongeBob in 2007, but Bowie was on there. Okay. Well, all right. <laughs> Henson pursued Bowie for the role for several years, and he was sending him early drafts of the script and involving him in the creative process. And when asked why he was involved with the film, he stated that, He'd always wanted to be involved in the music writing aspect of a movie that would appeal to children of all ages, as well as everyone else. Yeah. And he said that Jim gave him a completely free hand with it. And the script was terribly amusing without being vicious or spiteful or bloody. And it had a lot more heart in it than many other special effects movies. Yeah. So he was hooked on it from the beginning. Wow. All true. And I think he had great reasons for being involved. Yeah, no, totally. I would agree. In general... Bowie is so interesting to me because of who he was. He never really quite fit in on Earth. (laughs) And any artist like that, I always take notice of and pay attention to. And I feel like he progressed past what society tends to accept in a lot of ways. And he spent a lot of his life battling that and Mm -hmm. fighting with that, especially in American culture. Um, His sexuality was questioned a lot all the time. Mm -hmm. And he made multiple statements saying multiple different things. But one thing that he did say was that he regretted coming out as bisexual because he felt like it halted his career in America because Americans weren't accepting of it at the time. Probably. So he he kind of went back and forth on what he said, but yeah. I hate that anybody feels like they owe that to society. They have to tell society or put a label on it for someone else. Right. And I think that did more harm than good for him. Like it hurt him personally. Yeah. I mean, I would say that, that pressure. It, it benefited society as a whole. It just took some time. Yes. I would agree with that as well. Because now he's this icon yep. of that sort of mentality and that sort of acceptance of yep. what's different from the norm. He was doing that work, even though he had to fight through it in order to do so. It also is interesting to me the way that his acting and music careers became really intertwined with each other to the point where he was playing these characters on stage and storytelling was clearly always a driving force in his life. Yeah. He's he's just a really cool ass person. <laughs> Everybody's, you know, got their issues and problems and whatever you want to say about him, but I think he's a cool cool human being. No, very cool. Very if cool he being. was in fact a human being at all. Ooh, he may have been a lizard person. <laughs> A reptilian. So next on the list of the cast, obviously, is Jennifer Connelly as Sarah. Yeah. So Helena Bonham Carter, Jane Krakowski, Yasmin Bleeth, Sarah Jessica Parker, Marissa Tomei, Laura Dern, Ali Sheedy, Maddie Corman, and Mia Sarah all auditioned for the role of Sarah. Wow. All of them. 
Wow. And again, Jennifer was only 14 when she was cast in the role. Yeah. Uh, but she was the same age as her character, 16 by the time that came the out, film right? came out. He apparently, Jim Henson knew very quickly that he liked her for the role. And she had that authenticity about her in that coming of age way. And that's really what translated for him more than anything else. I mean, I, I would agree. I think she was right for it. I would like to see a Helena Bottom Carter version. <laughs> <laughs> that would be pretty cool. Um, that's I'm true. not going to say I wouldn't love that right now, but I see <laughs> the point. Yeah, for sure. I see the point. So she apparently got her start in print ads. It was like favors for friends or her parents. And she did some music videos. And then eventually she booked uh, Once Upon a Time in America in 1984. That was her first, mm -hmm. really her first audition and her first role. And she went on to star and feature in dozens of other roles, including Phenomena, Seven Minutes in Heaven, Requiem for a Dream, Hulk, Dark City, yeah. and her Academy Award winning performance in A Beautiful Mind. Yep. And she's also in the new Top Gun Maverick, right. which I haven't seen yet, but she is in the film. So. They recreated that motorcycle scene. <laughs> they recreated it. Oh, my God. I, yeah. Tom Cruise looks Apparently, insane. Miles Teller is making everybody feel some type of way on the internet. So I'm interested to see it for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but is his package the same size as David Bowie's? It's not the star of the show, I don't think. Oh. Not the way that, that Bowie's was. Right. It didn't like speak with the little squeaky voice. Oh my god. I'm oh my god. I'm the so king. I'll transition from that to say <laughs> Bowie was impressed with Jennifer on the set and although the chemistry and tension between the characters can be kind of unnerving to watch today yeah. and is the subject of a lot of scrutiny about the film, Jennifer has been interviewed several times over the years and after he passed away in 2016, she said that she thought it was very sad for many reasons. And she said, to me, not only was he a genius, he was a genius who had the time to be kind. And that was my experience of him. Wow. So they had a good time and a good experience on set. Good. And that is what matters, I guess. That is what matters. That is ultimately. Considering she was so young and it was so sexual. Yeah. And to, yeah. I don't know, that, that relationship had to either be really great. Or really terrible. Yeah. And I'm glad it was really great. Me too. And it had to be handled. They both handled it really professionally. And I think that's... Sounds like it. Because... It sounds like she understood. I appreciate that they... Again, it goes back to what we are talking about at the very beginning. Yeah. I appreciate what they, they approached in this film and what they didn't shy away from necessarily. They made it feel authentic on a certain I level. I really like it. That I approve intrigue it. and excitement, but also the, the fear associated. Thinking you want something when you're yeah. not ready for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But PG-13, come on. PG-13. Come on, guys. So next on our cast list, we have little Toby Froud. Toby! Who played Sarah's baby brother. Toby. And Toby was the son of conceptual designer Brian Froud, who I talked about earlier. Toby Froud. It's kind of funny. Uh, Toby's name was Freddie in the early drafts of the script, and they ended up having to change his name because he would only respond to his own name, which, fair enough. He's a one-year-old. What a little so. shit. <laughs> <laughs> Diva. God. Babies and animals, man. Babies and animals. Jim Henson said it. Who needs them? So Toby wasn't the least bit scared by any of the puppets, apparently. He loved well, them. They have to say that. Well, there were instances when they needed him to like calm down or be quiet, and yeah. they used puppets off camera to get him to calm down. That's so funny. I worried for him because, I mean, we'll get into <laughs> it, but when I say I cringe... With the baby scenes, mm -hmm. it's because one, I feel like I know how hard it was to get that, to get those the scenes. Performances, yeah. But also, that kid is crying almost the entire movie. <laughs> he wasn't happy sometimes. And that made me unhappy. I'm about to tell you some things that are going to make you feel better. Okay. So I told you that he's the son of Brian Froud, who was on set all the time. Right. And basically designed the story. That helps a lot. But another fun fact about this family is that Brian actually met his wife, Wendy, also a puppet maker and sculptor <laughs> while working at Jim Henson Studios. This is unreal. On Dark Crystal. There's, yeah. there's someone so for everyone. There's two, <laughs> two couples who have met because of the puppetry. Over a love of puppetry. Love of puppetry that Jim Henson. It's because they're good with their hands. It is because they're good with their hands. That is an, probably an accurate assessment. I should learn how to play an instrument. <laughs> I've been telling you that for years. I know. So... Toby is actually now a designer and sculptor in his own right. Cool. And he has worked on Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh, hell yeah. Paranorman, The Box Trolls. Paranorman? The Box Trolls? Kubo and the Two Strings. I don't know that one. And the Dark Crystal 2019 revival show, which 
I haven't seen. Nice. But apparently exists. That's cool as shit, And though. he also worked on the upcoming Pinocchio remake. Oh, my God. So he is More now. More crossovers, though, from last time. Yeah. And, yeah, crossovers from a lot of the stuff that we've talked mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Isn't that great? That is great. So Good for him. this is just a puppetry special effects family, and they are happy doing what they do. I'm glad his claim to fame isn't. Well, I'm sure it is, but I'm glad it's not solely you know Toby from the labyrinth? <laughs> I was the baby. I'm I am Toby. Tob. <laughs> I have the power of voodoo. <laughs> Who do you do? What? I'm the babe of the power. <laughs> you want to go out sometime? <laughs> Can I buy you a drink? <laughs> I really hope he's introduced himself like that. <laughs> I'm the babe with the power. Because he is. I-, I love the fact that he was born into this environment and it just stuck with him it for stuck, his life. Yeah. I hope that he enjoys it. It seems that he does. Uh, but I thought that was super, super cool. That is way cool. Yeah. I like that. Buzz is yelling now. Buzz is like, I want to be born into something. Well, I, kind of, um, I have that thought all the time. I really kind of like love the idea of being born into a, a long family line of I know, people who of did people that do something. the one thing mm-hmm. that our family is really good at. Yeah, I don't have that. We don't have, I don't have that. Mm-hmm. Not to say my family's not good at stuff. Just we didn't, we didn't pursue the same things. None no. of us have. No. Maybe some agoraphobia. <laughs> In addition to these three actors, the film also featured the voice talents of Brian Henson himself, yeah. who is the son of Jim Henson, and he voiced Hoggle. Hoggle. And actress Sherry Weiser wore the Hoggle puppet. And then Hoggle's face was radio controlled by Brian Henson, mm-hmm. who said that Weiser was doing all the body movement and her head was inside the head. And that's a difficult trick. Yeah. Hoggle was the product of five performers trying to get one character out of one puppet. And it was apparently very difficult. Man, and we thought Sloth was impressive with the Goonies. A. But this. Yeah, I'm going to reference Sloth. But I mean, this is is definitely uh, another level. The collaboration that that requires. Hoggle was a whole production in and of himself. Just him. Yeah. Just Hoggle. Yeah. Unreal. I, I... it, it, this just gave me a greater appreciation for all sure. of it and yeah. the way that you have to collaborate and trust other people to make art like this. That's hard. It's hard to do. God, and it's hard. they did it successfully. I also cannot verify this fun fact that I read, but apparently a hoggle puppet got lost in an airplane <laughs> and it remained undiscovered until it turned up at the unclaimed baggage center in Scottsboro, Alabama. Whoa. And it is supposedly now on display in their museum. Which museum? I would really appreciate if someone could verify that for us. The museum at the Unclaimed Baggage Center. In Scottsboro. Mm-hmm. Well, we live in Alabama, so why don't we I just know. make the trip? And I would love to. Clarify this know. fact for ourselves. So we'll let you know if we make it. But if somebody lives in or near Scottsboro, could you tell us if, if Hoggle lives there? Also that. Uh, it also featured the voice talents of David Goals as Didymus. And he also played the four guards in the nice. door, you know, that are upside down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were like cards, kind of. Yeah. Playing cards. Yeah, like playing cards. I had the same thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he also voiced the original Gonzo in The Muppets. No way. And has done other things. But that was the primary thing that I thought you might find interesting. I love voice actors. They can do so much it's, with, it's their, with their voices. I wish that were one. You could be it's one. Incredible. People tell me that you could be a voice actor. People listen to the podcast. No one tells me that. They Yeah, they want to tell me, not you. <laughs> Thanks, Kaylin's friends. <laughs> Michael Hordern is the voice of the wise man. Yeah. And he was a very prolific actor. There were so many credits for him. Um, 80s and 90s kids might know him as the Badger from the show The Wind in the Willows, which mm. I haven't seen, but it was an 80s show, or as the narrator from Paddington Bear. No way. Way. That's wild. Uh, Timothy Bateson was the voice of the worm, <laughs> which I loved the <laughs> I worm love as a kid. The worm, the worm was great. The so worm with much. the blue hair. God. Amazing. Um, Timothy Bateson had a lot of credits also, but you will know him as the voice of Creature in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. No freaking way. Way. I want to slap that baby right now. My God. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. The worm worm was really cool. And I'll talk about the puppetry as well when we get to it. So Ron Muick was another Henson employee and a favorite of his, and he voiced the character of Ludo. But he also alternated time in the Ludo suit with puppeteer Rob Mills. Nice. And Rob Mills went on to work on Fraggle Rock, Sesame Street, Dinosaurs, and The Big Comfy Couch. See, when you said, okay, Big Comfy Couch, that's what's up. But when you said (laughs) earlier um, that you weren't a big fan of puppets, my immediate first thought was, well, me not, (laughs) me not either. Wow. Long week. Me neither. (laughs) Not me really either. But dinosaurs. 
Yeah, dinosaurs. I love me some dinosaurs. I enjoyed dinosaurs as well, but it just wasn't, I didn't, I mean, in Barney, okay, if you want to call Barney a puppet. He's not a puppet, he's a freaking weirdo in a big costume. Suit. But see, there are suits here too, that's what I'm saying, it, it can be one no, of the same. it's different, it's different. Well, yeah, you didn't have like a poseable head and face and everything. I thought it was interesting as well, and they talk about it, they spend a good bit of time on it in that documentary, but the Ludo suit originally weighed over 100 pounds. Good lord. And Jim Henson asked how much does the suit weigh? And they told him, you know, over 100 pounds. And he said, start over. Yeah, try that <laughs> And they basically time. started over and reconstructed it. And in the end, it still weighed over 75 pounds. Good so Lord. that's why they would trade out between the actual voice actor and this puppeteer. That makes sense. Yeah. There were also a lot of other Henson puppetry alumni on this film, including Frank Oz, like I talked about. He was mm-hmm. the, he puppeted the wise man. And obviously he was one of Henson's closest collaborators for his whole career. Yeah. He voiced and puppeted a lot of the Muppet characters and Sesame Street characters, including Fozzie Bear, Miss Piggy, Cookie Monster. And again, like I said, he voiced Yoda. Yeah. So that's a pretty cool career, one would say. Definitely. Um, David Allen Barclay was the puppeteer for Didymus and the Fiery guys. <laughs> and interesting fact about David Barclay is that he was the principal performer for Jabba in Star Wars Episode Six. No way. And he was also the principal plant performer in the 1986 Little Shop of Horrors. I knew you were going to say that. Wow. Amazing. Very cool. And the chief puppeteer on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The NeverEnding Story, the third NeverEnding Story. Okay. And the 2009 Where the Wild Things Are. Oh so my it God. really all went full circle for David Barclay. I love that movie. And Karen Prell was the puppeteer for The Worm. And she's commonly credited amongst the Muppets and Fraggle Rock characters, including a 2022 revival of Fraggle Rock, which I was not aware of prior to doing this research, but... What, did it just come out? I guess. It had to have. Hmm. We haven't, we're only six months in. I don't know. I also thought The Worm was CGI. Um, So there were pieces... It wasn't CGI. It was not CGI. But there, there was like a smaller worm mm-hmm. and a larger worm for the close-ups. Right. <laughs> So they had two kind of puppets Makes sense. and one was more, you know, one was more static and one was more dynamic than the other. But Weird. all in all, hell of a lot of talented people on this movie yeah. and having to work very closely with one another and with Jim Henson and the actors as well. And it's kind of funny. Jennifer is interviewed in that documentary a good bit, as is David Bowie. So again, highly recommend watching it. And they both talk about the difficulty of acting with puppets and characters that aren't actually there, Mm -hmm. um, which again is a more common phenomenon today than it was in the 80s. And I thought Jennifer was really sweet in her interview because she basically said, eventually, you know, these performers become their characters and eventually you do feel like they're there. Eventually it all kind of falls away and you yeah. you are yourself lost in the imagination of it as an actor. Right. And they are who they're playing. And I thought it was cool because it, it just kind of highlighted that again. She was still so young at the time. Yeah. And that is cool. getting to fall into that magic every day on set must have been really cool. That had to be cool. And maybe scary too. I don't know. Hopefully. Oh, I will also say that it was almost impossible to sort out all of the credits because every character had multiple credits, performers, voices, etc. So if I screwed something up or missed something, I apologize. I just tried to grab the most relevant credits. So Yeah, sorry. that's at least true based off perfect. of what I've seen off of Amazon Prime, which is where I'm watching mm-hmm. it. When you pause it, it shows you like which actors played which characters of, in the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's always multiple people per like puppet. So. Yep. Yeah. It's hard to know, but I've that's the best info uh, that I could come, what you're telling come me here. upon. Yeah. So yeah, that is part one. That's part of one Labyrinth. of Labyrinth. I feel like we got to touch on some Shoot. of the existential stuff behind this movie, but not all of it. And I'm so excited to dive into that in part two. So. I kept wanting to like jump into the actual movie. Same. And I was like, I should wait. Same. You guys let us know if you like us doing it like this, because there are a lot of people that enjoy this behind the scenes stuff. I try to break it up as much as I can, because some people like some things more than others. Let us know. Let us know what you think. Yeah. We can uh, adjust. We've only been live seven, eight, eight months. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's we're we're still learning and we'd like to learn what you like. We want to know what you want to know. We want to know what you want to know about things that we kind of know about that we're researching. That we teach ourselves. That we might know about later. No, but seriously, yeah, feedback is important because we want to make it uh, what you guys want to hear. 
Yeah, and I, I, I'm not kidding. Please come back for part two of this one because... We've barely started. We've barely begun. But we appreciate you being here with us today. And I feel like I learned so much just about the making of this film. And it's impressive already. So I can't wait to put it all together. And again, that's still like the coolest part about this podcast is what we learn about all these things that we love that we never knew. Mm -hmm. So fun. We learned about, so cool. Today we learned about Jim Henson. I'm like the end of a Saturday morning <laughs> special. Today you've learned about Jim Henson right. and David Bowie. <laughs> All the beings that came together you to create. learned about David Bowie's package and Labyrinth. how it was never as big as you thought it was. It was never as big as you thought it was. We answered. So there are probably people who aren't, won't come back for part two because we already talked about. They David know Bowie's exactly. Package. But what I promise they... we're going to talk about it again. I mean, it's going to come up. Can't help it. Part two: the package <laughs> <laughs> oh coming God. to your ears in two weeks. <laughs> Yeah, but thanks for listening, guys. You know, follow us on social media. Oh, yeah. Please do that. That'd be we cool. We have podcast pages and we have personal pages. We do. And we want to hear how you're feeling. <laughs> Even if it has nothing to do with Labyrinth. Just, just shoot, shoot us a us, DM. Shoot us a message. <laughs> just let us know what's going on. How's or your day? Or even better, hey, if you're just bored, go leave us a review or a comment somewhere. You know what? If you just feel like, feel like it. Leave, you know? leave us all five stars. Drop some stars. On a, our, yeah, like Apple Music, wherever and, you're listening. And also a review. I know we are being hella annoying right now. <laughs> and we, we hate it, too. We hate uh, the superficial stuff. I don't remember if we said it earlier, but it's, yeah, it's so superficial compared to, like, actually yeah, talking yeah. with you. We but. prize authenticity, but a lot of this... Um, the machine, you guys. The machine. Rage against the machine, not us. We're playing the game. <laughs> we're feeding the beast. What, whatever, you know, allegory, euphemism you want to use. Ultimately, we're trying to make this work. We love this podcast. We want to keep doing it. Exactly. So, yeah, your support is really, really, really helpful. And appreciated. And soon, we don't have a date, but we will have a Patreon. Yeah, true. So stay tuned for information about that. We'll have some bonus content, some bloopers, some outtakes, some other stuff that just didn't make the cut, and other fun things, merch and what have you, will be coming your way. Keep your eyes peeled. And we're 80s and 90s kids, so we love, like, buying things that... <laughs> come from tv merch shows is, yeah. we love, I love merch i love a good merch drop we're gonna have action figures oh my god christian and kaylin action figure that, i have rarely thought a more terrifying thought <laughs> <laughs> okay scratch that last <laughs> anyway cool well see you guys in a couple weeks yeah can't wait to come back hit you with some more labyrinth facts thanks for being spooky and weird with us we appreciate you and yeah next time we get lost in the labyrinth oh it's gonna be transformative <clears throat> It's going to be otherworldly. Mm. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to That's Pretty Dark, written and produced by Christian Baxter Mott and Kaylin Andrews. Our music is composed by Jonathan Simmons, and our art is provided by Paige Garland at Power Girl Illustration. Join the collective nostalgia and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at That's Pretty Dark Podcast. Share your experiences and let us know what shows, films, or villains still haunt you from childhood at That's Pretty Dark Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, you're never really alone. So, until next time, sweet dreams, everyone. <laughs>